For most of my life, I was able to completely ignore Donald Trump. He showed up on my TV sometimes. He was loud, offensive, and very annoying. We're all fired. All four are fired. And for the most part, avoidable. I could quite literally tune him out. Then, on June 16, 2015, Donald Trump descended down the ridiculously long escalator in a building he named after himself and walked straight into our lives. Ladies and gentlemen, I am officially running for President of the United States, and we are going to make our country great again. Great for whom exactly? He definitely didn't mean me. They came in illegally. They are here illegally. Number one, we're going to build a wall. We're going to get rid of the bad ones because we have some... He launched his campaign on those words. It pissed me off to hear a presidential candidate talk like that. And even worse, people cheering. And even though I didn't take him seriously as a candidate, I knew Trump's words were dangerous. Build that wall. Build that wall. By the time the election rolled around in November 8th, 2016, I was ready for this madness to end. No more Trump rallies, no more Trump coverage, no more MAGA hats. I was working that evening. I was live on Telemundo giving analysis. Queremos saludar además a dos invitados esta noche. Y también a Erika Andiola, que es una dreamer, directora de política de nuestra revolución. Erika, ¿te preocupa esa tendencia que estamos viendo? Bueno, sí, para nosotros fue I was on TV for six hours, watching an increasing horror. Watching as Michigan went for Trump, then Wisconsin, then Florida. Michigan no ha votado por un presidente republicano. Wisconsin no ha votado por un presidente republicano. Estamos viendo la posibilidad, la real posibilidad de que pueda eso ocurrir esta noche. Before any of us had the time to wrap our heads around what was going on, our worst nightmares were becoming real. Ladies and gentlemen, the next president of the United States, Donald Trump. Thank you. It's been an honor. Right up until that very moment, the reality we're all now living in had seemed impossible. I said as much on Telemundo. I was asking a question that immigrants are still asking now, four years later. What is going to happen to our families? This is Homeland Insecurity, a podcast about how we all became the enemy. I'm your host, Eric Andiola. As we've explored throughout this podcast, the immigration enforcement arms of the Department of Homeland Security have been rife with problems and abuses of power basically since its inception. And let me remind you, that was less than 20 years ago. In this episode, we're going to talk about family separation. There's nothing wrong or illegal about seeking asylum or being a refugee. But time and time again, the Trump administration has made immigrants into the enemy, stripping us of humanity so that they can justify taking kids away from parents and putting them in cages. Trump was inaugurated on January 20th. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. The first week, he signed three executive orders on immigration that, 
we know now were just the tip of the iceberg. They included a call to hire thousands more border agents and ICE officers, a plan to build the wall, and the first attempt at what became known as the Muslim ban. Remember that? Refugee admissions were stopped and people from seven Muslim-majority countries were barred from entering the United States. It created immediate chaos at airports across the country. Massive nationwide protests erupted against his aggressive and xenophobic policies. So much has happened with DHS and immigration during the Trump administration. It's impossible for us to touch on it all here. For example, under Trump, we have had five, yes, five secretaries or acting secretaries of DHS. In the previous 14 years, we had six total. I won't go through them all, but Trump's first DHS secretary was retired Marine Corps General John Kelly. Two months into his term, in March of 2017, Kelly did an interview with CNN, and the country got a big, scary hint about what was coming. CNN asked him if he was planning to separate children from their moms and dads at the southern border. Yes, I am considering, in order to deter uh, more movement along this terribly dangerous network, I am considering uh, exactly that. They will be well cared for as we deal with their parents. That statement received a flurry of attention, but it faded away quickly. Kelly walked back his statement later that month. He may have considered separating families, but implementing it seemed too cruel to be possible. Just four months later, in July 2017, the HS and the White House quietly launched a pilot program to do exactly that. They started taking kids away from their parents who crossed the border between New Mexico and West Texas. No one knew, not the press, not the public, and definitely not the immigration attorneys on the ground. I did start to notice a lot of the kids at my shelter, at least, were so young. And, you know, we didn't have information about anything. Bianca Aguilera is a staff attorney at Raices. Most of her work is with immigrant kids who were picked up crossing the border. Usually they arrive on their own or with someone who isn't a parent. They're placed into shelters until they can be transferred into the custody of a family member or put into foster care until their immigration hearing. In the summer of 2017, Bianca was mostly focused on what her industry calls tender-aged children. Those in the shelters who are seven years old or younger Normally, there are not a lot of kids that young in the shelters. Most are teens. But all of a sudden, that started to change. They were much younger kids, and it was just more of them, you know, as opposed to before, you know, I would have, you know, let's say, like five or something at, at any given time. And, and then we just started seeing, like, 10 or, you know, 12. And so it became a lot. It just became like very overwhelming to, you know, it wasn't just five cases anymore. It was double. The race in numbers wasn't the only thing that seemed off. Bianca noticed a difference in these kids' behavior. Under normal circumstances, children arriving at the shelter are scared and confused, but... What I noticed, especially with, with these children, was just even the mention of like, you know, because we, we ask them who their parents are and, you know, their names and try to get as much information from them as possible. And even just the, the mention of, like, mom or dad or mama, papa, and they would just start crying and, like, couldn't talk, you know, shut down completely, like, just, just bawling. 
And so that's, you know, the, the difference that I noticed between these kids and kids that I had spoken to before is that they just couldn't even talk to me because they were just so overwhelmed, you know, with like emotion and, and just, you know, couldn't even get any words out. This was the summer of 2017, a whole year before the rest of the country found out what Bianca had discovered. The government was separating children from their parents at the border. But no one at DHS would admit it. Here's Jonathan Ryan, president and CEO of Raices. A lot of energy and effort and expense went in to keeping the parents of these separated children moving and in kind of distant and more remote detention centers from where their children were. Attorneys out there were seeing parents. We were seeing children. And the dots were not being connected because in both cases, they were moving the children and moving the parents from facility to facility so that by the time anybody could start to put the dots together, the dots were on the move. Before Bianca and her colleagues could figure out what was going on, it was over. The pilot program in Texas had finished without them even knowing it existed. In December 2017, Raices and a few other organizations sent a complaint to DHS calling for an end to the unexplained separations. At the same time, DHS was making plans to implement their strategy across the entire southern border. In April 2018, then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced zero tolerance. The Department of Homeland Security is now referring 100% of illegal southwest border crossings to the Department of Justice for prosecution. Every adult migrant caught entering the U.S. without documents would now be charged with the crime of illegal entry. Illegal entry is a misdemeanor. If found guilty, you can spend up to six months in prison. The stated goal of zero tolerance was to prosecute 100% of border crossers. But in reality, data shows the administration was prioritizing charging parents instead of single adults. That's right. If you were a parent with a child, you were more likely to be criminally charged than if you were an adult who had come alone. Some context here. Migrant parents who are criminally charged can be put into jail with their kids. The narrative has already been established that this child's parent was separated because they were being prosecuted and so it was for the safety of the child that they are there. This child has been protected from a parent who is a criminal. And you can see now how that insidious narrative takes hold through the very language of a governmental system that is ostensibly created to provide protection, care, and custody. The new policy's effect on families was devastating. Why would our government go out of its way to prosecute and separate families? It wasn't until early May of 2018, almost a year after the pilot program in Texas, the sessions publicly acknowledged that zero tolerance means children will be separated from their parents. If you are smuggling a child, then we will prosecute you. And that child may be separated from you as required by law. The attorney general referred to parents arriving with their kids as child smugglers. He criminalized the act of seeking asylum and then penalized these parents in the most horrific way by taking their kids away and locking them up. Let's just back up and remember that this is a department that was created in the immediate wake of the 9-11 attacks specifically to prevent another such event from happening on our soil. 
And, you know, here we are 20 years later, and all of these resources, all of this money and personnel are focused on attacking mothers and children, separating them in private prisons. The government's line was that family separation was a symptom of the laws in the books, meaning this is the law. We have to lock them up and separate them. Our hands are tied here. But that's not true. The reality was, even families who presented themselves at the border and did everything the law requires to request asylum were being separated. Kids to shelters, adults to detention. John Kelly, who was Trump's first pick to head up DHS, had by now moved to White House chief of staff. And in an interview with NPR, he explained a big reason behind family separation. The vast majority of the people that move illegally into the United States are not bad people. They're not criminals, they're not MS-13. Uh, they're coming here for a reason, and I sympathize with the reason. But the laws are the laws. A big name of the game is deterrence. Deterrence. We've heard that before. Deterrence was the Bush administration's excuse to building up the detention system. It was the Obama administration's explanation for expanding family detention from 100 beds to more than 3,000. And now here it is again. Deterrence. This theory that if we make it as bad as possible for immigrants, lock them up, take their kids, maybe we'll stop more immigrants from coming. Luz and her two daughters, Isabel and Clarita, are Guatemalan. They hadn't been following the White House announcements on immigration policy. On May 30th of that year, 2018, they walked from Juarez into El Paso to ask for asylum. No, we didn't know anything about how it would be when, when immigration picked us up. We didn't know anything about that. At the time, Luz was 47, Isabel was 19, and Clarita was 14. Those aren't their real names. Their immigration case is still pending. So for their privacy and safety, we're also not going to get into their backstory. Word of zero tolerance hadn't reached the family on their trip north. They crossed the border with a larger group of migrants who had no idea what would come next. CBP officers who stuck out in their green uniforms were waiting for them under the bridge. The group was driven to a border station nearby. Agents questioned everybody. They asked my name the names of my two girls, and I gave them the names. And they said, why did you come here? They're going to separate you. Luz and her daughters are petite. They're around five feet tall. At first, the agents thought both Isabel and Clarita were minors. Luz was initially told both girls were going to be taken away from her in the morning. They told me I'd see my daughters again in about a week. But unfortunately, it didn't happen like that. It wasn't a week. After questioning, they were taken into a room full of women and girls. Space was tight. They were given one sleeping pad that the three of them had to share. It was a first of many hard nights for Luz. She felt powerless knowing the next day, her daughters would be taken somewhere. When you're already in the hands of immigration, there's nothing you can do. You can't escape. Nothing. In the morning, agents call Luz and her daughters. They prepare to say goodbye. 
Here's Isabel, the older daughter. What would surprise me was that they sent me together with my mom and my little sister. They sent her with other kids. I thought they were going to send me with my sister, but it didn't happen like that. She couldn't believe she wasn't going with her little sister, Clarita. She was devastated. They took the youngest daughter alone. Why would they do that? It was bad. I felt like my world was crashing down on top of me because it was the first time we've been separated from her. We were always together, ever since we were growing up. Always. There wasn't a moment when we were away from her. But when that happened to us, it was like a part of my heart didn't exist anymore. I was so worried about her. Isabel was so scared for her little sister. And Luz felt like she had just lost her youngest daughter. Before the agents took Clarita away, her mom told her to take care of herself because she didn't know what else to say. I told her they said we would see each other again, again in eight days. But then we started to cry and cry. We cried because I didn't know where she was going to be. The agent took Clarita. And then there were two. It was another painful night for Luz and her eldest daughter. Isabel remembers her mom was torn apart. Did they make the right decision by coming here? She said, what are we going to do? If they send the three of us back, we have to go. But if one stays, no. That I'll never. I'll never leave either of you, she said. She felt very hopeless. She said she never imagined she would go through that. Clarita's mom and sister weren't alone in their fear and pain. The numbers aren't exactly clear thanks to poor government record-keeping. But somewhere between 3,000 and 5,400 kids, like Clarita, were separated from their families in the years since the pilot program began. At least 1,000 of them were under 10 years old. Stories of family separation started trickling out in late 2017. By the spring of 2018, the news was having a field day. We begin today's show with the growing outrage over the Trump administration's policy of separating immigrant families. These across new the and horrific images emerging of what is happening thanks to Trump administration policies inside a Texas detention center. Outrage action, as you have seen throughout the day, over the Trump administration's zero tolerance immigration policy. The public was horrified. We all were. This might actually happen when you first heard about Raices. On June 17th, a Bay Area couple, Dave and Charlotte Wilner, started a Facebook page to support our border work. The very next day, ProPublica published a seven-minute tape that changed everything. Anyone who hadn't been paying attention up until this point could no longer look away. The audio of children screaming and sobbing for their parents while being mocked by Border Patrol agents went viral. So did the Raiza's Facebook fundraiser that Wilners had started the day before. Almost overnight, we went from being a relatively unknown legal group in Texas to a household name across the country. In just over a week, that one fundraiser brought in a much-needed $20.7 million. Donations flooded in from over a half a million people like you and me, looking to make a difference. Since that summer, Raices has spent $15 million bonding people out of detention. We started being known as the people who break kids out of cages. 
It's a reputation we take to heart and have done our absolute best to live up to. My name is Sarah Valdez. I'm the co-director of the children's program at Raices. Everyone's seen the images of the kids at the border after they've been separated from their parents and then thrown in a cold cement cell. Those are our kids. Those are the kids that the Raices Children's Program represents. After everything they've been through, they have to go through an immigration court process, and we help advocate for them, fight for them, defend them so that they can stay here in this country legally and be safe. I have clients that are very young. One of my youngest clients right now is seven. And when I go into court with her, it's me and a seven-year-old. Her feet don't touch the floor. We really feel like we're a part of these kids' lives and we take pride in their accomplishments and we get excited for them when something good happens in their case. We get excited for them when they tell us good news, like they did really well on their math test or when they talk about their favorite teacher at school. Our work depends on you. Donate at homelandandsecuritypodcast.com. While the country at large demanded an end to family separation, Luz and Isabel were still stuck waiting in detention. Heartbroken, after saying goodbye to Clarita, Luz and Isabel were moved from the border station to another women's detention center. They took us on a bus with chains. Our hands were connected to our feet. You can't walk because the shackles hurt. Some of us had socks, others didn't. But the shackles hurt because they tightened them so much. The eight-day countdown until they could be reunited with Clarita, that came and went. They had no idea what happened to her or where she was. It would be a lot longer before Luz heard anything at all about her daughter. I think it was more than a month because I didn't know anything when they took me to Condado. I didn't know anything when they took me to Otero. I didn't know anything when they took me to Sierra Blanca. When I went back to Otero, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about her there either. Condado, Otero, Sierra Blanca, their detention centers. Over the course of seven weeks, she was moved five times. Before every move, she would be told to put on her old clothes. The dirty ones should weren't crossing the border and get on a bus. Luz and Isabel went together from one detention center to another. With no information about her youngest, Luz focused all her attention into caring for Isabel. Breakfast was served at 4 a.m., so she would let her daughter sleep and bring her back something to eat. After 20 days like that, while they were at Sierra Blanca, Luz's name got called. Here's Isabel. They told her she was going to leave, that she needed to grab all her stuff and get ready. I asked, what about my daughter? No, they told me. They said, unless her name shows up, you can't do anything. They're the ones in charge here. I don't make the rules. I said, as long as she can go, I'm not going either. The guard told Luz she had to leave without her oldest daughter, Isabel. She was 19, so she had a separate case from Luz. They had no rights or protections, and the government said they couldn't stay together. I wonder if that guard ever questioned her orders, or if she internalized a chain of command. Did she ever question the morality of what was happening? Did she look around at the system and think to herself, what am I doing? Or was she able to push away the cruelty and hide behind doing her job, 
the guard told her that the bus was waiting. Her youngest had already been taken away from her. And now, she had to say goodbye to Isabel. She told me to take care of myself, that I shouldn't worry, and that she was going to find a way for us to be together. I didn't want that. I started to cry. I started to tell her no, that she should take me with her, because I didn't want to be there all alone. I wanted to take her with me, but unfortunately, I, I couldn't do anything. When I got on the bus, I was crying because now I'm, I'm not with her, nor with the little one. How can I explain? I, I had double, double sadness. Isabel stayed behind. Another Guatemalan woman in the detention center took her under her wing. Luz was sent to yet another facility. It would be a long time before she heard anything about either of her daughters. With all the bad press, the Trump administration and DHS were floundering. They tried every possible justification for family separation. Uh, I can say that uh, it is very biblical to enforce the law. Uh, that is actually repeated a number of times throughout the Bible. But the separation of illegal fam alien families. I don't like the children being separated from the parents. I don't like it, I hate it. But that's a Democrat bill that we're enforcing. We can change it in one day. All they have to do is come and see us. Operationally, what that means is we will have to separate your family. That's no different than what we do every day in every part of the United States. the law, you subject yourself to prosecution. And I would cite you to the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans uh, 13 to obey the laws of the government because God ordained the government for his purposes. In my Orderly opinion, those are all insane. But the one that really got me was Sessions citing the Bible. Like, really? But after all the excuses, political drama, and national outreach since zero tolerance was announced, the response to the ProPublica tapes seemed to be the thing that finally galvanized people into real action. It pulled back the curtain on just how cold and callous Trump's administration really was. That tape revealed the harsh reality that there were thousands of children screaming for their moms in jails across the country. Two days after it was published, on June 20th of 2018, Trump signed an executive order to end family separation. We're going to be signing an executive order. We're going to also count on Congress, obviously, but we are signing an executive order in a little while. We're going to keep families together, but we still have to maintain toughness or our country will be overrun by people, by crime, by all of the things that we don't stand for and that we don't want. Not exactly remorseful but it didn't matter to the outraged public or to the separated families, as long as he meant this was finally over. Of course, ending it wasn't as simple as getting a presidential signature. The executive order came too late for so many families. In just one month, more than 2,000 children were separated from their parents at the border, and at least 463 parents were deported back to their home countries without their children. Imagine making the decision to uproot your family to seek a better life in the United States, only to be handcuffed, thrown in jail, have your kids taken away from you, and then sent back without having any idea where your children are. Luz was alone in detention, with no idea where her daughters were. She prayed. 
I said, Lord, give me patience, please. I'm only asking you that you get me out of here. It doesn't matter where you take me, if, if you send me to the United States or if you send me back to my country. It doesn't matter to me as long as I, as long as I go with my daughters. I'm begging you. A ray of hope came from an aid group. Luz doesn't remember who she met, but she asked them to find her daughters. She told them she thought the older one, Isabel, was still in Sierra Blanca. But could they get any information on Clarita? I told him, I haven't heard anything about my little one in three weeks. The man told me, don't worry, we're going to help you. We're going to help you, you'll see. But you need to be patient. We won't tell you what day, what hour, or what moment that you're going to talk to your daughter. But yes, you will talk to her. You just need to wait. Luz was moved again to another detention center. The next day, she finally met with a government official. It had been five weeks since she crossed the border. What am I going to do? Am I going to sign my deportation or am I going to fight my case? That's the question he asked me. I told the man, I'm going to go in front of a judge. The judge will tell me yes or no. I'm going to fight my case because I have two daughters. The man told her she should expect a call about her case. Later that afternoon, Luz's name was called. They told her she was going to an interview. When she went to the room, someone asked her, do you want to talk to your daughter? Yes, I said, which one? I have two. They said, do you want to know about the younger one? Because she's on the line now. After all that time with no information about Clarita, Luz immediately felt relief. When they passed me the phone and I heard the voice of my little one, I asked her how she was. She started to cry, and so did I. She told me, patience, mama, we're going to get out, we're going to get out, but we don't know when. Patience. I asked her, are you being fed? Where did they take you? She told me she didn't know where she was. I asked her, I only want two words. Just tell me, are you okay? She told me, yes, ma'am, I'm okay, don't worry. I asked, are you sick? And she said, what can you do if I'm sick? You can come get me. I told my daughter to forgive me because I didn't want to leave you. It wasn't me who left you. It had been more than a month since Clarita had been taken away from Luz. The officers only gave them five minutes on the phone. Two days later, they got one more phone call. But after that, Luz didn't hear anything for another 15 days. My name is Luz Varela, and I am currently a legal assistant at Raices Children's Program. My job consists of helping the children who arrive to the border, and they get detained, and they get sent to a shelter. I talk to them about their rights. 
what's to come for them in terms of legal. And then we do an intake to see if they qualify for a legal relief here in the United States, so a visa. We deal with a lot of children that come from very rough places, a life of violence, from poverty, from traumas, and then they come in a journey that is really dangerous for them. And so when they arrive, they have no trust for us. But once we are able to build that trust with them and that relationship, it becomes so fulfilling to us and, and very important to them to have someone that they can trust. We want to help people that want a better life. And that's the only thing that we care about. The best way to support this work is to donate to Raices. Visit homelandandsecuritypodcast.com. Without government support, the responsibility to help these kids find their families fell on the attorneys and social workers in the shelters. But they didn't have a lot to go on. Normally, meaning before Trump started zero tolerance and family separation, even the youngest children would arrive at the shelter with basic information. Their parents' full names, at least a little bit about why they came to the U.S., and a phone number for a relative living in the country. Kids would be prepared because they were traveling alone and they had memorized everything they needed to know. But the kids who were separated from their parents, they only knew mama or papa, or maybe just a first name. Raisa's attorney, Bianca Aguilera, again. That became really difficult for us in trying to locate that parent and try just to get more information to really be able to screen their child and also, you know, eventually um, reunify them. Some kids stayed at the shelter for months while they searched for any information on their families. We had a six-year-old who spoke um, a different language, so not English, not Spanish, um, and we didn't know what that language was. And so we couldn't even get, you know, what in, like try to figure out what their parents' name was or anything like that. And then also we didn't have any information whatsoever. And so it took us forever just to be able to get some sort of contact. And by the time we were able to get that contact, you know, we find out that, oh, this child had been separated from his brother. And at, by this point, brother is already back in home country. It just, it was like months of this going on. Bianca's job became a nightmare. Anytime you meet with this child, they want to know where their parent is. That's the first thing they ask when I would like walk into the room is be like, have you found my mom? Have you found my brother? Um, it became a lot of trying to to locate that parent um, and just a lot of hurdles doing that. And normally we would work, you know, an eight to five schedule. And, and I just started staying late every day. The problem with locating the family members wasn't just that the separated kids didn't come prepared with information. And I don't know if many people know this is that um, there was no record keeping at the border when these separations were happening is there were and if there was it was not being implemented and and never shared you heard that right dhs did not keep any record of the families they separated let's dig into that when a family is apprehended at the border, they normally get registered into the DHS database with a family unit code. But when family separation began, there was no official way to mark the people they'd split up. Agents would give the kids an unaccompanied minor code, and the adults would be listed under the single adult code. The original family unit code would just disappear, and so would any record of their connection to each other. And so it was like they were separating these children from their parents without any way of 
ever knowing how we could connect them back. And that to me was like the craziest, most insane, like I could not comprehend how that's even possible, that you can allow that to happen. The Trump administration and DHS launched family separation with zero plan to reunite families. The effect on the children was drastic, especially the really little ones. Lou still didn't know where her daughters were. The two very short phone calls with Clarita had lifted her spirits for a while. But she didn't know anything about Isabel. When she got called into an office at the detention center, she guessed it was just another transfer. Then they asked, do you want to see your daughter? Which of the two, I asked. The little one, yes. I took my clothes off quickly, folding the clothes. It didn't matter to me anymore. I took it off quickly and tossed it where they put the dirty clothes. Hurry up, lady, they yelled. Hurry up, do you want to see your daughter or not? This time, they didn't put loose on a bus. They took her to another room. Clarita was there waiting. When my daughter saw me, she started running. She came and gave me a hug. She was crying, so was I. But I told her, it's over. We'll see. We don't know how things are going to go for us, but it doesn't matter. I told her, don't worry. It doesn't matter where. If we have to go back to Guatemala, it doesn't matter. You're with me now. That day, after Luz was given an ankle monitor, she and Clarita were released. It had been seven weeks. Isabel was still stuck at Sierra Blanca, but she was finally able to speak to her mom and sister by phone. It was Isabel's only shred of hope while she waited in detention for another two months. She was released in September. After a two-day bus ride, Isabel was finally reunited with her mom and sister. She, too, was wearing an ankle monitor. The story isn't over for Luz, Isabel, and Clarita. They're still fighting their case to stay in the U.S. What's next for them isn't clear. But Isabel says she's not afraid of the future. No, I'm not afraid. But I do have hope. Only God knows what he will do with me or with my family. The only thing I know is that I want the three of us to be together, wherever we go. Luz and her daughters are together, but so many families were ripped apart. And even though the policy had been officially taken off the books since 2018, there are still children without parents, and parents without children because of this. During family separation, the public did an incredible job raising the alarm and offering support, which was amazing, and it makes sense. We thought this was the worst thing we'd ever seen. So many of you stood up and cried. This will not stand. And it worked. For a while. Jonathan Ryan again. Even in the face of this public attention, the family separation policy for the Trump administration was a success. The real success was the normalization of family detention. It's scary how easily we can get used to increasingly terrible realities over time, especially when they're presented as a way to protect us from vague, ominous threats of terrorism. We don't want crime in this country. We don't want people coming in. We don't want 
people coming in from the Middle East through our border, using children to get through the lines. We don't want that. We're doing too good a job to allow that to happen. So we're not going to allow that to happen. Thank you But very that much. has been the story of DHS from the beginning. The fight that we're fighting, the battles that we've been waging are the same as they were in the Obama administration and, for that matter, under the George W. Bush administration. As much as I would love to be able to blame Donald Trump for all of these horrors, he didn't invent this machine, but he's definitely using its powers in a whole new, terrifying way. We now know family separation was just the beginning of a pattern. It was started in secret. The administration and DHS lied and denied over and over again. And when that didn't work, they made up different justifications to cover their actions. Then they pulled it back just a little, but only enough to stop our screaming. They wanted to see just how much power they could get away with. That dangerous pattern was going to play out across the entire country again and again. ICE detention centers, they are really tinderboxes. They could become essentially death camps as soon as COVID-19 starts to spread throughout them. Trump is using COVID as a cover for hurting people, hurting immigrant people. We don't care about what happened to these people. They don't look at them as people. I, I believe they just look at them as objects to be removed. ICE is using this loophole to basically blame parents for the separation. That's next time on Homeland Insecurity. Homeland Insecurity is a Raíces production. Produced by Alexandra Garreton and executive produced by Sarah Barrett, Jonathan Ryan, and Brian Carmel. With production help from Carmen Graterol, Aldonza Contreras, and Natasha Pizzi. Thank you to Ana Maria Roa and Shelly Baez for their performances as Luz and Isabel. I'm your host, Eric Andiola. If you're moved by what you've learned in this podcast, then we need you now more than ever to get involved in the fight for migrant justice. Go to RaicesTexas.org to learn more. And one more thing. We're getting a lot of really disturbing comments on Apple and other platforms. Stuff like, you're here illegally. When you read these, you can tell it's from people who didn't even listen to the podcast. They just want to attack me because I'm an immigrant. The best way to help us fight these kinds of attacks is to rate the podcast and leave a review. If you listen this far, we absolutely want to hear from you.